I thought I'd do a change of pace today with the uh, suttas. We've been having this pretty heavy fare up to now, um, and uh, particularly also concerned with uh, meditation, which of course we are interested in. But um, there's a little sutta here, a short one, which concerns thinking. And uh, it's um, very um, common sense and straightforward. And I think, um, well, we're all still thinking, aren't we? So <laughs> it doesn't go amiss to um, have some... Now here again in this uh, sutta, we hear that on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. Now remember I told you how this came about that it was told, called that. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied, and the Blessed One said this, because before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thinking into two classes. Before the enlightenment, the Buddha is called a bodhisattva, in Sanskrit bodhisattva, in Pali most of the Vs are eliminated and it becomes a double consonant. In Nirvana, for instance, it becomes Nibbana. The R and the V are both eliminated and it becomes two Bs instead, instead of R and V. Here we have instead of Sattva Sata, Bodhisattva. Literally translated, the word Bodhi means enlightenment. And the word Sata or Sattva means the purity of, or sometimes said the search of. So bodhisattva is essentially a person in search of enlightenment. So in, in the Mayana tradition, we, we often hear that those people who are practicing and are trying to go towards enlightenment are all bodhisattva, which is a very nice way of thinking, I think. However, in this tradition, the bodhisattva is the Buddha before he became a Buddha. So he says this was before his enlightenment. And he divided his thinking in two classes. It occurred to him. Now there's no question about not thinking. These are special occasions, first of all, when we meditate. We don't want to think. And on other occasions, if we want to take a step into the unknown to let go of self. We also can't think. There are other occasions in one's daily life if one has become um, efficient at the absorption that one can let one's thinking mind go and just be at ease in the mind which doesn't focus on anything special. However, if one needs to gain insight 
obviously that has to be done in the mind and at times important things occur now we could take it as a matter of course that this occurrence no matter what it is is based on some experience in this case also he must have had different kinds of thoughts and now it occurs to him that he could divide those into two classes in other words we don't think something up in the mind which is based strictly on our imagination or on something we heard somewhere or something we are curious about on the spiritual path we take what we have experienced in ourselves and make it intelligent and um, useful conclusion about it which is he doing which is what he's doing here something is occurring to him the name of the sutta I wanted to mention there's a word vitaka in it and vitaka vichara are the two first aspects of the first absorption initial application and sustained application vitaka initial vichara sustained however vitaka is mostly translated is mostly translated as thinking or um, just um, the kind of thinking that the ordinary kind of thinking and that comes from the fact that it's used in that manner too which is being used here here it's used as just discursive thinking or ordinary thinking and the difference is very often not recognized that in the jhanas obviously it isn't concerned with discursive thinking I mean who needs discursive thinking they want to get uh, concentrated but here it concerns that so this is the reason why we find the uh, difficulty in the translations very often because the same words are used for different things we have the same in English we have to know uh, the differences in the same words very often in their context the difference only comes uh, becomes apparent in the context so then then I set on one side one side of these classes thinking with sensual desires with ill will, with cruelty and I said on the other side uh, thinking with renunciation with non-ill will and with non-cruelty well obviously the non-ill will concerns loving kindness and the non-cruelty compassion so he set aside the the uh, wholesome thinking and then he made a class out of the unwholesome now what he's actually doing he's labeling and you must remember and I've been badgering everybody that if you have distracting thoughts in the meditation and they are more than just a fleeting cloud label it's important to know what it is so he's labeling his thinking now he's not talking about meditation he's just labeling his thinking he's giving them six different labels he's putting three on the side 
of the wholesome and three on the side of the unwholesome. And it's a very definite label. So these are very exact labels which will tell him what is going on. Now again, the next paragraph does concern the meditation because when it is said, as I dwell thus, diligent, ardent and self-controlled, that sentence means meditation. Now we could check ourselves against that sentence. Are we diligent, ardent and self-controlled? And if we aren't, maybe we can do something about it. Diligent, doing it again and again, ardent, really concerned with it, giving oneself to it. Ardent is something that we very often connect with passionate love. Do we passionately love our meditation? Or do we sometimes think, I wish this was over already? And self-controlled, self-controlled of course means concentrated. Thinking with sensual desire arose in me. Well, he wasn't uh, uh, enlightened yet, so thinking with sensual desire arose. And he under- I understood that. There is this thinking with sensual desire arisen in me. It's labeling. Okay? It's a very important aspect. It's not just thinking, 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 thinking. It's being labeled exactly as it is. And that leads to my own affliction. So he didn't just label, drop, and go back to the meditation subject. He became strictly aware of the fact that an unwholesome thought leads to one's own downfall, one's own affliction. Nobody else, just oneself. Nobody else in it. To others' affliction, if, of course, one acts it out, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs understanding. This is another interesting aspect, actually, that our um, our defilements obstruct our understanding. I have often coined this particular sentence, the purification of our emotions clarifies the thinking. Well, obviously, the purification of our thinking also clarifies the thinking. So we could go this one step further. This is not concerned with the emotional aspect. He's talking about his thoughts. The impurity of a thought brings about our attachment to it. Now, if there's a sensual desire thought and we're not very alert to it, obviously, we will want to follow it up. And as we want to follow it up, we can't think clearly anymore. We are only concerned with following the sensual desire. So our thinking apparatus is totally impaired other than trying to follow the arisen thought. We are no longer objective, in other words. It obstructs understanding, it promotes annoyance. Oh, that's clear, isn't it? and it leads away from Nibbana. Every, every unwholesome thought leads away from Nibbana. It doesn't matter whether it's slight, medium, or strong. They all lead away from Nibbana. Now when I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. 
and when I consider it, this leads to others' affliction it subsided in me and when I consider it, this leads to the affliction of both it subsided in me when I consider this obstructs understanding promotes annoyance and leads away from nirvana it subsided in me whenever thinking with sensual desire rose in me I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it now what he says is that in all three cases it subsided but when one could logically conclude that if the first one doesn't do it one uses the second one and if that one doesn't do it the third one because if it has already subsided there's nothing else to be done so thinking about the fact that one is oneself afflicted others are that it's annoying that there's no understanding with it and Nibbana is further away any one of these will make it subside which obviously means that we very deliberately do something about the unwholesome thought we don't justify it we don't blame it we deal with it this is important to deal with things if we don't deal with it we won't get finished with it as I dwelt thus diligent, armed and self-controlled thinking with ill will arose in me and the same thought process then occurred I understood thus there is this thinking with ill will arisen in me it leads to my own affliction others affliction affliction of both obstructs understanding promotes annoyance leads away from Nibbana when I consider this leads to my own affliction it subsided in me leads to others affliction it subsided in me when I consider this leads to the affliction of both it subsided in me and when I consider this obstructs understanding promotes annoyance and leads away from Nibbana it subsided in me whenever thinking with ill will arose in me I abandoned it removed it did away with it now with ill will this is a little easier than sensual desire sensual desire appears justified well, I'm hungry so I want to eat I don't want to meditate I want to eat or my right leg hurts I don't want to sit here any longer or um, I've been meditating long enough I want to go to the beach now or um, I just have a nice day today I just rest on my back anything it all sounds quite justifiable and normal and sensible I'm supposed to love myself so why don't I do something about it (laughs) (laughs) believe me I've heard them all so um, and I've thought at least half of them myself so um, they're quite justifiable they sound alright they seem normal nobody gets hurt in the process except oneself of course but one doesn't consider that because apparently one is being pleased not hurt and Nibbana well that's alright tomorrow it doesn't have to be today you know so um, 
So one gets on with it, whatever the sensual desire is, it looks okay. It's not something where we are going to, you know, sort of break the law or uh, become involved with other people or anything like that. We just want to have it a little easier, that's all. Dukkha is getting a bit on top of us. So sensual desire arises and it's going to be nuts. That doesn't happen with ill will. Ill will is most unpleasant. It uh, um, produces a lot of um, unrest. It produces uh, fear sometimes, anxiety. It produces upheaval. And it doesn't feel good. There's no way to justify it except saying, oh, well, this person is just impossible. There's no other way to feel about it except angry. All right, we can go that far. But it's no way we can justify the anger and the ill will by saying, well, it's okay, because it doesn't feel okay. And therefore, it is much easier to adapt. It's much more unpleasant, but it's much easier to adapt. And most people that start meditating are very keen on doing that. Because, especially when they have a lot of it. When people have a lot of ill will, they do want to get rid of it. It's uh, so unpleasant. And they have the same ill will, of course, towards themselves as they have for others. But this essential desire is a totally different story. Most people aren't even aware that they have it. And... Um, getting rid of it is not even mentioned and yet it is the first of our five hindrances it stands at the top of the list and it is the one that keeps us in the realm and in the round of birth and rebirth because it is our essentially our craving to be desire is desire no matter how it's dressed up we can dress it in the most elegant clothes, it's still called desire. And it is much harder to see. I think everybody knows when they're angry. But very few people know when the subtle desires arise. So this is something, the reason I'm elaborating on it so much, is this is something that in a situation such as we have here, which is very controlled and quiet and peaceful. Examine, to examine it, look at it. Doesn't have to be med in meditation. You can call it a contemplation. Particularly, look at it when it arises. The arising of it. Now, there's no blame involved, but also no justification. It just is. But it isn't to my own benefit, nor to anyone else's, and it takes me away from Nibbana, if I had the idea that I'd like to get nearer to it. And this is a very, very useful way of examining oneself. Obviously, self-blame is totally useless. It's directly related to ill will. So we mustn't fall from the extreme of sensual desire to the other extreme of ill will towards ourselves. That will not help us at all. What will help us is the clear recognition of what's going on.
And as I've said before, and probably will say, say again, it, it's very interesting. Why not do it? What could be more interesting than finding out what makes us each tick? This stuff makes us tick all the time. All right, next. Or any questions on any of this, what I've said so far? Essential design, any, anything. These are the first two hindrances. Huh? We have already mentioned them, but here we have it again in a different form. Any questions? No. Everything perfectly clear, wonderful. Now the same thing goes to, uh, uh, relates to cruelty. Again we find that this is one's own affliction, others and affliction of both and promotes annoyance, leads away from Nibbana. And so when one sees that, it subsides. Now what would be a thought of cruelty? It's a strong ill will. It's when one thinks about doing some harm to someone else. Now in the first instance, (coughs) what may be happening is that somebody's doing something nasty to oneself. I mean, it happens all the time. Somebody wants it differently from the way one wants it, and they are not very pleasant about it. But if so, we have a feeling of ill will and annoyance and irritation arising. But if we just then want to retaliate in any manner or form, that becomes cruelty. So retaliation for anything to anyone is foolish. It hurts us more than it hurts another. The um, simile the Buddha uses for anger, which I have mentioned before in courses, is a very useful one to remember. He compares anger to a person picking up a hot coal with their bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody else. The one who gets burned first is the one who picks up the hot coals. And if the other one is clever enough to duck, the whole exercise was for nothing. And ducking, of course, means that we are confronted with somebody who doesn't accept what another person puts out. There's a lovely story of a Brahmin who are, where and are the priest caste in India and were to a great extent quite um, antagonistic to the Buddha for the simple reason that he was undermining their livelihood because he was teaching that there was no salvation possible by um, praying to the gods, pouring ghee over them which is a common uh, practice in India then and today. So many of them didn't very much like the Buddha for trying to uh, tell the populace that they should not do the Brahminical rituals. And one particular Brahmin came to a discourse of the Buddha and behaved in a rather impolite manner by walking back and forth in front of the Buddha while the Buddha was still speaking. And uh, finally, 
when the Buddha had finished speaking the uh, Brahmin started abusing the Buddha he said he's teaching the wrong doctrine and uh, he was uh, luring the young men away from their families and uh, he was teaching a wrong religion and should be um, thrown out of the country and the Buddha said to the Brahmin Brahmin do you ever have guests in your house? The Brahmin said, well, yes, of course I have guests in my house. The Buddha said, and when you do, do you offer them food and drink? And the Brahmin said, well, of course I offer them food and drink. And the Buddha said, and if they don't accept your food and drink, to whom does it belong? And the Brahmin said, well, it belongs to me, of course. The Buddha said, that's right, Brahmin, belongs to you. In other words, there's no need to pick up the hot coals. They can just drop on the ground. And this is a practice which is so obvious and very few people can do it. But it's something one learns if one remembers. Again and again and again. And one has to do it slowly. I don't think that anyone can do that immediately just by recognizing yes that's true I don't think one can but if one does it over and over again eventually it's possible to recognize that belongs to the one who's putting it out it's very helpful in daily living <laughs> story of the Brahmin whom does it belong now there we are next paragraph in whatever way a bhikkhu keeps thinking and pondering that will affect the inclination of his mind accordingly that's a very important sentence I think we had that very similar sentence already in whatever way a bhikkhu keeps thinking and pondering that will affect the inclination of his mind accordingly so whatever we think and ponder if we ponder the ways to Nibbana, well, obviously, we're going to be affected by that. And uh, if we think of worldly matters, well, we'll be affected by that. With a strong mind, a very well-practiced and trained mind, one can change the train of thought at will. A not-so-trained mind, which is not that strong, we'll have to be far more careful we'll get into a train of thought and won't be able to change trains so quickly so wherever we incline our mind think and ponder that's where we're going to go naturally one couldn't one could actually call this a truism couldn't one and yet we don't actually do it of course here under these circumstances we have a much better chance because there isn't that much worldly stuff happening but still mind can go wherever it likes if we don't pull it back on its leash if he keeps thinking with sensual desire and pondering with sensual desire he has abandoned thinking with renunciation to cultivate thinking with sensual desire and then his mind is inclined to thinking with sensual desire. If he keeps thinking with ill will, 
and pondering with ill will, he has abandoned thinking thinking with renunciation to cultivate thinking with ill will and then his mind is inclined to thinking with ill will same for cruelty now it would stand to reason that since the thing isn't printed that all three are concerned with renunciation but it actually isn't so Because renunciation should have been printed, in other words. <laughs> renunciation is the opposite of sensual desire. Now, renunciation in this case does not necessarily apply to living in a cave, becoming a nun or monk, uh, giving up all one's worldly goods. It doesn't mean that in this case. What we're here concerned with is the renunciation of sensual desire that's the renunciation that is being talked about now the renunciation of sensual desire when it is forced does not have very good effects it um, I like to compare that to a balloon where you press in one side and so it pops that doesn't work the renunciation of sensual desire comes about with great success when one has seen that the gratification of the sensual desire doesn't bring any happiness either a very momentary one it doesn't bring any lasting inner peace then of course the renunciation becomes easier it's not guaranteed either nothing is guaranteed in this life except death and that doesn't mean much only the Arahant can say that sensual desire has disappeared for anyone else we have to direct the mind again and again towards renunciation announcing the sensual desire for the simple reason that we know that it's not going to give us what we're aiming for is a very very useful way of um, looking at it when a desire becomes so strong that we feel we've got to follow it the opposite of the ill will is here mentioned as non-ill will but we'll call it loving kindness huh? so the lo loving kindness He has abandoned thinking with loving kindness which when the mind becomes inclined towards the will. We can tell that to ourselves that if ill will is there in the mind which can arise as irritation and annoyance, it can arise as um, rejection, resistance, dislike, even indifference although indifference is not under the heading of ill will but it is sometimes caused by it we just don't want any part of it so we make indifference arise when any of these have arisen we can say to ourselves quite clearly this 
is the opposite of loving kindness. This will be no good for me. Or whatever else is useful to tell oneself. Obviously, when irritation, annoyance, ill will arises, one has abandoned loving kindness. And with the cruelty, we have abandoned compassion. For when cruelty means, in which it should mean retaliation, doing something evil to another, or something unwholesome to another, we have no compassion at that time for that person's dukkha. Whether that person has ever heard the word dukkha, has acknowledged it, accepted it, understood it, makes no difference. We've all got it. Everyone's got dukkha. So when we have forgotten that, we can have the feeling of wanting to retaliate. Some people find it easier to have loving kindness than others. Some people find it easier to have a lack of sensual desire. Whatever is more difficult is the one we need to practice more naturally. So these are the opposites eh, of the uh, unwholesome ones. And obviously the Buddha is talking about in both ways, in meditation and outside of meditation. When he says, as I dwell thus diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, he's talking about meditation. When he says, um, in whatever way a bhikkhu keeps thinking and pondering, he's talking about outside of meditation. So it applies in both cases. Huh? And it concerns labeling and also making um, deliberate effort to change. The substitution that I've often mentioned. Now he's giving some uh, similes. Just as in the last month of the rains in the autumn season, when the crops thicken, a herdsman would guard his cows, constantly tapping and poking them on, his, on this side and that, with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he foresees the flogging or imprisonment or loss or blame that could befall him if he let them stray into the crops. So too, I foresaw in unprofitable dhammas a danger of degradation and defilement and in profitable dhammas a blessing in the renunciation which blessing is on the side of cleansing. Unprofitable dhammas are unprofitable content of mind for foundation of mindfulness. And the Buddha saw in it when he was through the Bodhisattva a danger of degradation and defilement. In other words, he saw that these unwholesome thoughts were dangerous to himself. And that's what they are. They're dangerous in a way that they degrade us and defile us. The less of them we have, the more cleansing and purifying it is. In the profitable ones, are a blessing on the side of cleansing, purification. Now, as I've told you before, our meditation, the uh, concentration, is a great assistance to that purification, but it has to be supported by our daily living, by our daily activity. Naturally, everyone falls afoul of this at some time or another, only the arahant is exempt. If we then blame ourselves, we're adding another 
negativity on top of the first one. And we have what I usually call double dukkha. And we're pretty proficient at doing that. One of the reasons why we're so proficient at thinking the, uh, in, a, in an unprofitable way is because we don't think straightforward. We don't look at things the way they really are. We try to explain them in a way which we think they could be or should be. Once we've let that go, that could be and should be, and just look at them the way we really are and the way things really are, it becomes much, much easier to deal with any kind of situation which arises in oneself. Now, this is, um, was a simile for the, uh, uh, the danger of the unprofitable dhammas because a cow herd would be afraid to lose a cow because he'd be blamed terribly and he might even be imprisoned for it. So then comes a bit of meditation. As I dwelt thus, diligent, ardent and self-controlled, thinking with renunciation arose in me. I understood thus, there is this thinking with renunciation arisen in me, and that does not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction, or to the affliction of those. It aids understanding, does not promote annoyance, and leads to Nibbana. If I think with that and ponder with that, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I foresee nothing to fear from it, only that with the continued thinking and pondering, I might tire my body, and a tired body harries the mind, and a harried mind is far from concentration. This is quite an interesting paragraph because the Buddha is teaching himself, obviously, how to meditate, because what is arising in him is a thought. It's a thought, it's an understanding, which is a thought, that he has, is having, having his understanding that he's thinking without sensual desire. He's announcing sensual desire. And he's also thinking that if he would continue that, there would be nothing to fear. But with all this continuous thinking and pondering, he'd certainly get very tired. And if he got very tired, certainly he wouldn't be able to concentrate. Well, it's a sort of a very common sense, logical conclusion, isn't it? Accordingly, I settled mind in myself, quieted it, brought it to singleness, and concentrated it. Why is that? So that my mind should not be harried. So, in other words, after he got through understanding that thoughtless renunciation of sensual desire will be to his benefit, he then dropped the whole thing and got to concentration because he realized that otherwise his mind would not be at ease. And the same story again about the meditation when he was thinking with loving-kindness, with non-ill-will. And again he realized that this would be very beneficial, nothing to fear from, but yet he would also have to drop that in order to become concentrated. And the same with compassion. It was something that would 
promote and would not promote an orient that would lead to a nibbana but again he couldn't keep it going if he wanted to be at ease so he dropped it and became concentrated so in other words first we drop the unwholesome and substitute with the wholesome and then we drop the, un- the wholesome also and get concentrated huh? in whatever way a bhikkhu keep thinking and pondering that will affect the inclination of his mind accordingly so what he's actually telling us is that we should make up our own mind how to do it and as we think and ponder that's what's going to happen it's impossible to go by somebody else's rules nor is it possible to um, not have a established way of thinking in the mind the mind is very habitual uh, habit prone and it establishes itself in some manner or form in the way it thinks and reacts so if we have some unwholesome habits in there we need to get some new ones if we keep thinking with renunciation and pondering with renunciation he has abandoned thinking with sensual desire to cultivate thinking with renunciation and then his mind is inclined to thinking with renunciation the same goes for a loving kindness and for compassion now he just gives another uh, simile (coughs) just as in the last month of the heat the summer when all the crops have been brought inside the villages a herdsman would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree out in the open since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there so too there was need for me only to be mindful that those dhammas were there first of all it's again an interesting simile it's all agricultural society practically the whole of the Buddhist society was agriculture and there were a few what we call tradesmen carpenters, weavers and potters but uh, the main stream of society was agriculture and uh, I think that we can see from it from these similes a little bit what was important to the people of that time so what he's saying here is that at this time now when he has done all these things that he has talked about all he has to do is watch that the cows are there in other words all he has to do is to be mindful that the profitable dhammas stay in the mind he doesn't have to go around and poke and push because the unprofitable ones don't intrude okay oh, I wish they printed these things I have to go back to another sutta just a minute sutta 4 I hope it's in here Anya, would you go around the corner there? There's another one of these, uh, volume three. 
So the results which the uh, <coughs> Bodhisattva attained because of this, tireless energy was aroused in me, and unforgetting mindfulness established. My body was tranquil and untroubled, my mind was concentrated and unified. Now because of the fact that he had no more of the unwholesome thinking, either in the daily life nor in the meditation he had energy he had mindfulness he had tranquility in the body and unification in mind I'm sure you must have noticed at some time when there were upheavals in the mind that that used up an awful lot of energy that the mind became very tired and with the tired mind the body becomes tired too however when there's nothing but love and light and joy the mind does not use up all this energy it retains it and it doesn't get tired so this is one of the advantages only one of the many of having a mind which stays on the positive Many, many years ago, a bestseller was The Power of Positive Thinking. The Buddha speaks about many times, he doesn't call it that, but this is a very a nice way to connect to um, our way of speaking, The Power of Positive Thinking because the energy which is needed for concentration is strictly mind energy and it concerns both it concerns mind and body because the mind affects the body so if we have during the day had a lot of upheaval type of thinking which may be irritation, annoyance, worry, fear um, unfulfilled hopes anger, dislike, rejection, any of that pride, um, jealousy, worry any of that our energy will be depleted by the end of the day and um, the uh, on the other side joy and loving kindness arouse energy and with that arousal of energy we have a much easier time of course to um, get concentrated and then we've got the next paragraphs which are all concerning the jhanas first jhana second jhana third jhana 
fourth jhana, and then Abhijana. Okay, I won't read you the passages about the jhanas because we have read them already. But then comes an interesting aspect, an interesting... After the fourth jhana, the story changes a little bit. uh, We had one where it finished it at the first, fourth jhana. We had another sutta where we had the uh, arupa jhanas. But this talks about something else. When the concentrated mind was thus quite purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, imperturbability. (laughs) I directed, I inclined the mind to knowledge of the recollection of past lives. Now this word here, imperturbability, is a word that we wouldn't use in daily language complicated for one um, and uh, it's uh, totally um, uncommon to use it has a certain meaning in the Buddhist um, terminology again it is a mind which has already in it some of the factors of enlightenment because it has become malleable wieldy you can change it at will steady and it has the ability to get knowledge of of the recollection of past lives so when the mind has become like that it has gone to a state where it can get the abhinyanas, the higher knowledges and these higher knowledges we have already mentioned them before. One of them is about the past lives. But what we read here is that it's actually done in meditation with the concentrated mind quite purified, bright and unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady and attained to imperturbability. Rid of imperfection is a totally pure mind. There's no residue of any taint however it is possible to have the higher knowledges at the state of non-returner which is not totally rid of imperfection and of course at the state of arahant and um, he talks about going back to the past knowledges of a hundred thousand years we did a read that already it is an actual uh, meditation technique, method, which uh, should not be used if one hasn't attained to at least non-returner. Because, first of all, it uh, is the uh, expenditure of one's concentration towards a, um, not towards Nibbana, but towards a side issue. can be done, but it's a side issue. Very often done out of curiosity. And anyone who has not attained any of the liberated states would probably feel rather quite 
impeded by knowing, actually knowing past lives. Because there is a tendency to grab, grab onto them and say, that's me. Well, it wasn't me. It was just a past life. And a past life and a present life and a future life and all mixed together. So it's not uh, a thing that one should practice unless it comes of its own accord. Now this was the first true knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent and self-controlled. Happens to one who meditates. Um, the first one of the higher knowledges, the true knowledges, in the first watch of the night is considered to be from uh, 10 to 12 at night then comes from 12 to 2 and then from 2 to 4 uh, it is said in many of the suttas that the Buddha only slept from 12 to 2 and uh, in the second watch and some, sometimes he talks about all three watches of the night when something happens and also it is said that he slept mindfully which is a very interesting state and comes from very concentrated meditation sleeping mindfully it, I mean it doesn't sound like much does it to sleep mindfully but when a person sleeps mindfully they actually know that they're sleeping they're not awake but they know they're sleeping and the um, knowledge of sleeping is not is a keeping the mind from dropping into this small death that it usually does at night so it stays alert and aware even during that time the Buddha is supposed to have done that and never says whether everybody all our hands have done that now again the same thing is said for the heavenly eyesight when the concentrated mind was thus quite purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady and attained to imperturbability, I directed, I inclined the mind to knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings with the heavenly eyesight, with the clairvoyance. Now, here, the mind having gone through the four jhanas, he's only mentioning the four jhanas, that's the fourth one, the mind is, of course, rid of imperfections during that time. And uh, it is bright and unblemished and pure and malleable and wieldy and steady and attained to imperturbability. It can't be perturbed. There's nothing that can perturb it. So at that time, it's the time to do this. Um, it arises, as I said, spontaneously for someone who has attained uh, the um, non-returnist base. This was the second true knowledge attained by me in the second watch of the night. Ignorance was banished, true knowledge arose, darkness was banished, and light arose as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and self-controlled. But now, the next paragraph, he talks about his enlightenment experience. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's all not on this uh, uh, photocopy because it's in a different footer. Um, unfortunately these books were done in a manner where they did not reprint that which was already printed 
because the, the suttas are enormously repetitive. So that's why not every sutta contains anything. When the concentrated mind was thus purified and bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, become malleable, wieldy, steady, and attain to imperturbability, I directed, I inclined the mind to knowledge of exhaustion of pains. Now again, this is a very important statement. I directed. We don't wait for potluck. We direct the mind. We direct the mind to where it wants to be, where we want it to be. We incline it so that it can be where we want it to be. So if we, for instance, have been able to do first and second jhana, we indirect it to third. If we're in third, we direct it to fourth, unless it happens very easily through practice. We can direct it to fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. We can also direct it to insight. We must not wait. There's no time to lose. We direct the mind. Now we often are under the impression that our mind gets angry or um, happy. Just uh, nilly-willy. That's because we aren't attentive enough. We could direct it otherwise. We don't have to accept the way it does. We don't have to accept non-concentration. We can incline it towards concentration. We need to become master of the mind rather than mind being master of us. Okay, so he directed inclined mind. Sorry, where am I? Um, and I had direct knowledge thus now direct knowledge is an interesting way of expressing it and it is expressed like that in Pali but it means the understood experience which is direct knowledge the knowledge is that understanding and the direct is the experience it's very important because otherwise we have this very unfortunate affair of knowing it all and not being able to do it and feeling just as awful as we ever did before before we knew all this and that doesn't help anybody does it I had direct knowledge thus this is suffering I had direct knowledge thus this is the origin of suffering I had direct knowledge thus this is the cessation of suffering I had direct knowledge thus this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering What's he proclaiming here? What's it called? Oh, that was the last thing. What's all four called? That's right, four noble truths. The last one is the noble eightfold path. Which is the, what's the third one called? This is the cessation of suffering. Nibbana, that's right. What this is the origin of suffering called? That's right. All right. I'm going to all put you back a class if you don't don't know these answers. (laughs) Okay, then I had direct knowledge thus. These are taints. And I had direct knowledge thus. This is the origin of taints. 
and I had direct knowledge that this is a cessation obtained and I had direct knowledge that this is a way leading to the cessation of taint. So taint, most of the time three, the taint of sensual desire, the taint of being, which means the craving to be, and the taint of ignorance, of not knowing where it comes from. These are the three taints. Sometimes the fourth one is uh, also added, the taint of wrong view, but most of the time just three. And then the direct knowledge knowing this is the origin of the taint. So what is the origin of the taint? The origin of the taint is the delusion of the me uh, concept. That's the origin of it, which he could see then. He could see that there are these three taints, the sensual desire, the craving to be, and the ignorance, and then the origin, the me delusion. And then the cessation of taints, cessation of me delusion and the way leading to the cessation of things calm and insight this is his enlightenment experience that he's talking about now as we can see here the enlightenment experience includes the four jhanas first it includes the purification of mind in daily life and in meditation. Eh? In meditation it includes the labeling, in daily life it also includes the labeling, and the realization that it's no good if these defilements will arise. So with purification of mind, through meditation, in meditation and daily life, then the four jhanas, because the purified mind was able to do it. There's no mention here of the other four, quite arbitrary. Sometimes he mentions them and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes they are mentioned just as extension of the fourth one. And after the four jhanas, two of the higher knowledges past life and and the uh, clairvoyance and then the four noble truths and the noble eightfold path. And that arose, the story goes then in other suttas, the story says that the uh, jhanas and the, uh, then the insight arose all in one sitting. Now the jhanas had been well practiced by the Buddha, of course. And that arose in that same sitting. So this was the enlightenment experience, seeing the fact that the me delusion created the taint and being able to get it let go. But we mustn't forget direct knowledge. Knowledge knowing, direct experiencing. When I knew and saw thus, the mind was liberated from the taint of sensual desire, taint of being, and taint of ignorance. I am using three. When liberated, there came the knowledge. It is liberated. It meaning the mind. I had direct knowledge thus. Birth is exhausted. The life divine has been lived out what can be done is done. There's no more of this in the beyond. Or sometimes there's no more of this to come. In other words, there's no rebirth to come. Traditional sentence at the end. So the knowledge, the onus of the knowledge is on oneself. So what happens is also this, can be said like this, the past moment when it happens, when direct knowledge arises, 
And then the fruit moment when one understands what has happened, first the knowledge, then the direct, first the uh, knowing of, first the experience of it, sorry, first the experience, then the understanding of the experience, and then the review. It's the third step. The reviewing knowledge is called. First one is called past, second one is called fruit, third one reviewing knowledge. Reviewing knowledge means that one looks and sees, are there any defilements left? Can I still get angry? Or carried away by passion or whatever. And when one finds that there is liberation from all that, there is liberation from the taint of wanting to be, from sensual desire and ignorance, then one knows one is liberated. And this he calls, in this case, this was the third true knowledge attained by me in the third watch of the night. Ignorance was banished, true knowledge arose, darkness was banished, light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent and self-controlled. One who abides like that should get there. Hmm? Now, now there's two more or few more paragraphs which I'll read out, which go back to the sutta that you have. Suppose that in a wooded range there was a great low-lying marsh near which a big herd of deer lived, and then a man appeared seeking what was not their good, their welfare, their surcease of bondage, and he closed a safe and good path that led to their happiness and opened a false path, and he put out a decoy and set up a dummy so that later on the big herd of deer might come to loss, ruin and calamity. But suppose some man came seeking their good, their welfare, their surcease of bondage, and he reopened the safe and good path that led to their happiness and closed the false path, and he hurried away the decoy and destroyed the dummy, so that later on the big herd of deer might come to growth, increase and fulfillment. Because I have given you this simile in order to intimate a meaning. Now the meaning here is this. The great low-lying marsh stands for sensual desire. The big herd of deer stands for beings. The man who sought what was not their good, their happiness and their surcease of bondage, stands for Mara, the evil one the tempter. Hmm? The false path stands for the wrong eightfold path, that is to say, wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration. The decoy stands for delight and lust. The dummy stands for ignorance. The man seeking their good and their happiness and surcease of bondage stands for the targeter, arahant and fully enlightened. The safe and good path that led to their happiness stands for the Noble Eightfold Path, that is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. It's very um, easy to know what's wrong view. Wrong view of self is very easy to know. That's what everybody has who isn't enlightened. It's very easy to know what's wrong intention. Wrong intention is when it isn't pure, when it isn't filled with giving and loving, um, wrong speech is easy. Wrong speech is lying and gossiping and uh, idle chatter. 
wrong action making bad karma, wrong livelihood hurting other beings wrong effort it's not that easy to know wrong effort concerns making effort in the wrong direction becoming a millionaire in order to buy more things for oneself takes out a lot of effort but not right effort according to the Buddha wrong mindfulness that's one that the scholars argue about what's wrong mindfulness some of them have said that wrong mindfulness means putting mindfulness on the wrong object well it can't be what is a wrong object it can be one of two things it can be either mindfulness which is directed with out any understanding of one's what is for one's good or it can be a lack of mindfulness wrong mindfulness can be lack of mindfulness but it can also be mindfulness in a matter which will turn out wrong for instance if a man would like to break into a bank open the safe and steal the money he needs a lot of mindfulness otherwise he's going to trip all the alarms and he's going to be caught before he gets near the money but he hasn't got the right intention behind it obviously it's very easy to see wrong mindfulness of course is also when we don't have any but putting it on the wrong object we can only say that it has the wrong intention behind it because mindfulness itself can't be wrong because it's bare attention it's totally bare it doesn't have any dressing up it's just attention so it's an interesting way of putting it because it does lead to um, sort of debate on it wrong concentration well wrong concentration we could say would be concentration on those worldly subjects which will increase our sensual desire and our ill will and all the rest of our defilements rather than being concentration in the meditation when the meditation concentration comes together it always concerns samasamadhi which is right concentration which are the absorptions so if we put our concentration on subjects which do not go in the spiritual direction the Buddha is trying to show that it is possible to be led astray in fact for anyone quite easily to be led astray and in the time in his time there were teachers about whom he denounced as giving the wrong teaching and leading people astray he didn't mince his words at all he just said they are wrong and um, he said it with a, a total conviction which befits a Buddha so he's after having had his enlightenment experience 
he's saying that there are wrong ways of practice and there are right ways of practice. And if one stays with the Noble Eightfold Path and with the Buddha's teaching, one shouldn't have much trouble. So because the faith and good path that leads to happiness has been reopened by me, the wrong path has been closed, the decoy hurried away and the dummy destroyed. That's quite an interesting sentence. Has been reopened by me. In our tradition, this Buddha whose teaching we follow is a seventh Buddha. And the same teaching is given by each Buddha. But it dies out completely after some time after the Buddha's death and has to be reopened by him. Each Buddha teaches the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, but finds that himself. Never has he found a teacher for him. And at the time of reopening the path, the path had been buried completely. And this is why the prophecy in one of the commentaries says, After the death of this Buddha, it will be 5,000 years until the words Anicca Dukkanata will not be heard again until the next Buddha arises, which will be eons away. And he has to find it, he has to reopen the path again. There's another part to this commentary, which is very interesting. And it is found in, in the commentaries in this tradition but they're so buried that we hardly ever get near them. And it says that within that 5,000 years, right in the middle, there will be 100 years in which the teaching of the Buddha takes a great upsurge and it will be possible to follow it to completion until it again subsides. We are now in the 37th year of those 100 years. So we have an enormous chance, but if we don't grab it, we might be sitting around for eons. <laughs> Perish the thought. <laughs> so this is a, that's what he's saying, the Buddha is reopening the same path. Huh? It's always by the way, in the Mahayana tradition, as far as I know, there are 24 Buddhas mentioned. In this one, only seven. What should be done for his disciples out of pity by a master? I should like to com uh, change that. Out of compassion by a master who seeks their welfare and has compassion on them. That I have done for you. There are these roots of trees and these empty kutis. Develop meditation, because Do not delay, lest you later regret it. This is our message to you. This is what the Blessed One said, the because were satisfied and they delighted in the Blessed One's words. So, any questions on any of this? I was 
Well, most of it is usually due to outer trigger. Now, an outer trigger can come from outside, like we may see something, hear something, taste, touch, or smell something, but it may be from inside, we may think something. And as we think something, and if it isn't very wholesome, it changes, pervades our whole thought process. That's why the Buddha says, direct the mind, incline the mind, do not allow it to do what it likes. Yeah. Is this something more universal? It operates um, like that between any one person, that would be necessarily a private state. But is there a more um, universal state? Well, it's possible, but it wouldn't ha- would have any bearing on the matter. If the one who is aware of it changes his or her mind, it may help the others too. It has no bearing on the matter. If one did, that's fine. If one knows what goes on in other people's minds, that's great. Mm, no? no? Not, not in the divine thing, but just uh, to know if there is some external, um, you know, like we took that universal mind, I think, last night. And if the state can be pervading and seen as not my state, it's, it's just a, a state of rising. Well, there are two ways of looking at it. When one's own mind has negativity in it, it's up to oneself to change that, right? If one has connection and is connected to universal mind, then there wouldn't be that arising. Universal mind is just universal mind. As we know it out of Sishjana, it doesn't have negativity, it doesn't have positivity, it just is. So if there is negativity in the mind, it has arisen out of impurity and needs to be purified. That means substituted. And if there is difficulty with that, and there is an ability to direct it towards the universal mind, which is the state of infinite consciousness, by all means. See, there are two levels. One is that one, and one is this one. This is, this is the, the Buddha talks about ordinary state of mind, which can be either positive or negative, and having then purified to positivity, going into the jhana. So first on this level. Yeah. What, what actually prompted the question was um, the Bodhisattva. Sakha in, uh, in uh, Sanskrit, you know, 
the tree going up. She's um, part of the Hindu teaching. That takes the responsibility off one's own shoulders. The Buddha does not approve of that. The Buddha's teaching is strictly a do-it-yourself job. Strictly well, one's own responsibility. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't seeing it in terms of uh, not, not following up on whatever is in mind, but it just seemed that if, if there was knowledge available there that may make things clearer, it may be easier to, to deal with itself. If there was an, a knowledge of knowing that there was something coming from outside, it wouldn't make it any easier to deal with it. Well, that has to be learned anyway, the non-identification with whatever state arises. If there is an identification with that state, it will be very difficult to substitute it for another. And as soon as there's n- the non-identification, then we can substitute at will. And this is the whole thing of the mindfulness state, which is a, an objective state and not subjective. So when one sees anger or whatever it may be arising, and one doesn't get angry with it, one can substitute, if needed, to something positive. So this is where we have to do the groundwork this is sort of say the groundwork that the Buddha talks about and as the groundwork is done we can go into a more exalted state but the Buddha doesn't talk about uh, this particular Hindu teaching he uses some of the Hindu teaching obviously karma and rebirth and uh, the jhanas but he doesn't talk any at all about any of outside uh, influences it's all done in one's own mind because one's own mind does have the ability to be universal they can we can go all the way to enlightenment and don't have to get these states back. Well, we uh, know all the necessary steps, don't we, for enlightenment. <laughs> at, at the moment of his enlightenment, would be for each person would be different, or or is it considered that that those are the steps that that each person would, would go through? I mean, everyone wouldn't have the same. It's like he had an insight. You do. And and then his mind. I mean, it was a combination of of jhanic absorption and then seeing mm. this and seeing that, and then he had this insight. Well, it's the uh, the past moment is not in moment where the insight arises. The past moment is the what he calls direct here. The past moment. It's a moment of the experience when 
everything falls off. It's sort of like you could even, I mean, you can compare it to a lot of things. You can compare it to going through the eye of the needle and leaving everything else behind. And that's the past moment. But the fruit moment gives the understanding of what has happened. And it may very well be that at the time of the fruit moment, the uh, understanding arises, these are the Four Noble Truths. That's quite possible. It's uh, not necessary. Not necessarily that that arises. What arises can be, this is uh, letting go of uh, self or something like that. Can arise. This is liberating. Can arise. I feel free. I feel at ease. Whatever. Many different things can arise. Not necessarily the form of the truth. But because he was destined to be a great teacher of mankind, this is what arose. And that was what arose. Was the pivot of his teaching. The uh, first teaching that he ever gave after his enlightenment. The Dhamma Chakra Pravadana Sutta the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma concerns the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. Was, was it his seeing the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path the thing that triggered his enlightenment? No. Or was it, is that something that followed? That was his explanation of his enlightenment experience. Yes, you could say like that. Um, but mind is internal. So universal consciousness is you can't say with right with absolute truth that personal mind is part of universal mind. That is still a deluded state. Yeah. Because in an absolute sense, there is no personal mind in the first instance, okay? So in the absolute sense, we must uh, say there is only universal consciousness. And as far as that is concerned, that universal consciousness keeps but exists in the universe. So as long as we have a universe, there's universal consciousness. However, universes contract and, and expand and also disappear. And have done so and will do so. So as long as we have a universe, there is universal consciousness. See, we always have, actually, two levels of relating to things. On one level, we're relating to it from the me standpoint. I need to purify my mind in order to become enlightened. Quite all right. Totally valid. Because if I don't do that, I'll never see anything. Right? But from an absolute standpoint, there's a different level. On that level... There's nobody there that needs to purify anything 
and there's nobody there to become enlightened because everything is already. But that doesn't do us much good if we are not very happy with that, are we? So we've got to get there in order to be that. So we're actually having those two levels of relating to the same identical thing. Is that clear? Okay. Anything else? One out of questions, huh? <laughs> First week there were lots of questions. Now everything is totally clear, isn't it? That's great. But you see also how the Buddha teaches is also not uninteresting for us to know. He teaches in a manner which always starts really at rock bottom. It's really, really that he doesn't start at rock bottom. Rock bottom, get the ill will out of your mind, get the sensual desire out of your mind, substitute it with something else, substitute with renouncing the one and loving kindness for the other. And then as you do that, become aware of the fact that you can concentrate. And then as you can concentrate, go through the jhanas. Now, obviously, you don't do that in the space of three, three pages. I mean, this might take, who knows, three days, weeks, months, years, and so on. But as you do that, as you go through the jhanas, you eventually have a mind which is so wieldy and so um, malleable and so pure that it can let go of everything else. And this is one of the similes which has occurred to me. It's like going through the eye of a needle. It's only a simile. And that may not even be a good one. But uh, it's something like, you know, there's no, not the substance of this self-person becomes small enough to pass through this eye of the needle and leave everything on the other side. So all this is a in practically all his suttas, he goes from the very ordinary, what bothers us in everyday life, to complete enlightenment. And again and again, we have to remember that there really is only universal mind. So if one human being can do it, all human beings could do it. Obviously, they don't. And why not? Because they turn take the first step of purifying the impurities of the mind, changing them into purity. It's a really um, quite um, descriptive in this subject. 